A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to Movie Crush, a production of iHeartRadio. Everybody and welcome to Movie Crush, Casey Friday edition. Casey, I say hello. Hello. Uh, we are. When was the last time I had you in here? About six weeks ago. Yeah, it was. It was like um, the first week of April or something. So it's it's been a minute. It was kind of the beginning of uh, the lockdown. Exactly. Yeah, I was thinking like we we were so uh, fresh and innocent then, and now uh, <laughs> we're we're old pros at this at this lockdown stuff. I know. Uh, how you guys doing? Holding up well? How's the household? Yeah, it's it's my, my girlfriend. Actually, she went back to her place this week because she's actually started back work again. Oh, so, wow. yeah, that's not great, but it is what it is. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, we're we're holding up fine here. Um, to me, this just feels like the normal way now. And I'm kind of an introvert anyway. So, yeah, sure. in, in a way, I've I've lived weeks of my life like this <laughs> prior to the, the whole confinement so thing good. anyway. So, yeah, I'm fine. That's good. You know, Paul, uh, your roommate and I did a very controversial episode on soup v bat or yes, bat v soup, which I, I started. I have not finished it yet, but I'm about halfway through that one. I started. Oh, last you're night. listening? Yeah, interesting. Right. And it's it's weird because I have not seen that movie even, but um, I'm gonna check it out. I guess I'm gonna do the whole the whole no. cursed uh, <laughs> trilogy now of uh, what is it? Man of Steel, Batman vs Superman, and then the the newly. Yeah, the Justice League, which is now coming out in the uh, the Snyder, Snyder cut, apparently. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm gonna watch that. I mean, here's my deal: the reason I'm watching these movies, even though I don't love them, is that I was a I wasn't a comic guy growing up, but I was more DC in um, my loves, which were just sort of from watching, believe it or not, Super Friends and Justice League cartoon. Sure, sure, and um. Just the early Superman movies and, you know, from Donner in the 80s I grew up with. 
whereas there was no Marvel going on. Uh, so I'm in more, I'm more invested in the, and I had the Wonder Woman TV show. So like Wonder Woman, Batman, Superman, I had the Batman TV show. All yeah. that stuff is more a part of my DNA than Marvel ever was. Cause I wasn't into comics. So that's why I'm watching these movies, each one with the, the hope that it's going to be awesome. <laughs> right. Yeah. I was, I was a DC kid and I did, I did collect comics for a while. Um, kind of in like the mid nineties, right around the time that uh, Bane broke Batman's back and they killed Superman and all that stuff was going on. So oh, wow. I think the, I think the whole Batman versus Superman thing will be somewhat in my wheelhouse of what I'm familiar with. Cause I did read like dark Knight returns, the, the Frank Miller right. graphic novel and all that. So um, I was never into Marvel at all. So I don't, I don't really have any uh, attachment to those characters or those movies. Yeah. I've said it before on the show. I don't know why I never got into superhero comics. Uh, I don't know. It's weird because I like that stuff. It just, I don't know. And it was weird with me because I got into it because there was a uh, a comic book shop, like an independent comic book shop in yeah. Roswell where I was growing up. And it was just a cool place to go hang out for a while and browse the stacks and find cool yeah. stuff. And then, That might have helped me. Yeah. And then the guy ended up closing the shop or moving it somewhere else. And that was just sort of like that ended my fascination right. with comics right then and there. Yeah. So, you know, I could have, I could have grown up to be way more of like a comic book uh, guy or something, but I'm kind of glad that uh, it ended when it did, like in my yeah. early adolescence. And Paul is not as well. I was surprised he picked that movie. Um, it was an interesting conversation because I didn't love the movie the first time I saw it. Liked it better through, uh, with his cut and, you know, just through the lens of talking about it with a friend. Sure. That always helps, but uh, still don't love it, you know, it's just... I don't know. Zack Snyder to me is just, he's not a hundred percent, you know, he's yeah. like, he's a 70 percenter. It's, it's, I think, um, a lot of us are still, when we think Zack Snyder, we think, um, 300 and I don't know, just that, that, that once that whole, that whole aesthetic of like sweaty men, oily bohunks, oily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, gratuitous violence and all that stuff. So, yeah, I did. Having said that though, uh, Flawed as it was, I was such a big fan of the, I did read the Watchman um, graphic novel. That's mm -hmm. one of the few things I did. Uh, actually, Jonathan Strickland gave it to me oh, at, cool. uh, in the early days of How Stuff Works and recommended it. And uh, I, I did, for all its faults, I did enjoy the Watchman movie just because it was uh, just seeing those characters come to life. And I thought, I thought a lot of it worked, even though it was a bit of a mess. Yeah. That's that's another one I wanted to see, but I still have not checked out. But I am kind of curious about that one. I, I mean, I do like the sort of like meta comic approach. I think okay. that he takes there. Yeah. <laughs> well, I do like I like the Watchmen better than any of uh, any of the Superman stuff he's done so far. I think. Interesting. And of course, I love the Watchmen TV show, but he didn't have his dirty little paws on that. <laughs> so, uh, Paranoid Park. I sent you. I'll, I need to share this with everyone, Casey, and, and poke fun at you a little bit. You asked what kind of movie, if it needed to be more feel good. And I was like, no, nah, not feel good, but <laughs> at least something widely seen, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so you sent Paranoid Park and Old Joy yeah. to very little seen films. That's still. true. This is true. <laughs> I get, you know, but, uh, I, I have a hard funny. time. Like, um, I feel like we need, we need some kind of objective, uh, measure for like how widely a scene is film or not seen i think box office is that measure casey <laughs> this, this did like four and a half million i think on on like a 1.5 budget so that's pretty yeah good. and four million of that was in europe yeah 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 i saw that too like the per screen average was like 
I don't know, five, 10 grand or something in the US. So, yeah, it was interesting. Um, and that was one of the notes I had to bring up. This movie, Gus Van Zant clearly does well in Europe. Uh, did uh, 90% of its of its revenue there, uh, did about 400,000 and change here. Uh, and my deal with Gus Van Zant, dude, is I was a devotee and saw his first, whatever, seven movies, sure. like as they came. Yeah. And then, stopped watching Gus Van Zandt movies for some reason. Was there like, was, was like psycho the breaking point? Like what, was there a moment where you were just kind of done with him or? I don't know. I thought the psycho thing was an interesting experiment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I wouldn't say like, Oh yeah, it was great. I want to see it again, but I'm glad I watched it. Uh, it wasn't so much that I think he went after Goodwill hunting and the psycho sort of backlash. Yeah. he, He went way back to his roots and went really, really, really indie, Yes. borderline experimental which i'm all about too uh for some reason though yeah. i just i, I missed that Jerry. was i mean that's that to me is my favorite um my favorite period of his when he when he makes yeah. jerry and elephant and last elephant. days and then this movie i didn't see um, any of those but i've seen bits of all of them yeah. I, i'm yeah. gonna go through now and watch them all because i had not seen this and it reminded me of how much I just fucking love Gus Van Zandt. He's one of my favorite filmmakers. This one, I think, is it's it's odd because it's the last one that he made kind of in this style before he went sort of back into more Hollywood mainstream filmmaking with Milk. I haven't seen those either. Yeah. Um, well, but, actually, I did see Milk. That's the only yeah. one I saw. Yeah. Which was, I mean, Milk was pretty good. It was well shot, well acted and everything. It. But it doesn't have like the experimental panache mm-hmm. of, of this, of, you know, the last, the four films before it. Um, this is a bit of a detour, but the last thing I did before all this, um, quarantine stuff started, Alex, Alex Williams and I, mm-hmm. our colleague from work, we went on kind of a cinematic pilgrimage to Philadelphia back in oh, like wow. late, late February to go see the seven and a half hour film, Satan Tango directed by Bela Tarr, <laughs> who's okay. a, who's yeah. a Hungarian filmmaker. Right. And Satan Tango came out in the mid nineties and it was like a big deal at the time. Um, you had like Susan Sontag saying that she would watch it every year for the rest of her life and all uh-huh. these kind of like heavy intellectuals weighed in on it. And then a lot of filmmakers responded to it as well. And Gus Van Sant was one of them. Yeah, for sure. And so that kind of directly led to him making this trilogy or quadrilogy of um, sort of experimental low budget mm-hmm. Features that all have some shared DNA with the Bellatar films of long takes and tracking shots and overlapping yeah. timelines and things like that. Silence. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Got to be. Got to be comfortable with slowness and silence for sure. And um, I don't know. It was. It was a great way to see the movie because I had been wanting to see it pretty much since it had first came out, or at least a mm-hmm. few years after when I learned about it. And. Um, I had put off seeing it all these years. I'd had video copies of it, but it never seemed like something I would actually yeah. be, be able to sit through at home. And so when the restoration came out and it started touring around, it wasn't coming anywhere close to Atlanta. Right. So we just kind of decided, well, why not? We'll, we'll go up there and Dude, see it. And so like the I whole, this. the whole process of like, you know, getting on a plane and flying yeah, and getting yeah. in a hotel and like <laughs> arriving so at the venue the next day and everything. It's just like, uh-huh. it, it, it reminds you that, that the, the theatrical experience and just the feeling of like remembering a time and a place and circumstances and like even like meals we had, you know, before, or after the movie, like the whole thing is all kind of yep. like combined into one, one thing. And it's, it's so much more meaningful in a way than just, 
like streaming stuff at home or, or whatever. There's there's so much more weight to it. And in a way, it kind of feels like, I mean, I, I hope that that theatrical experience will still survive post all of this. Yeah. But it kind of feels like almost like the last great memory I'm going to have of that era. No. I don't know. I <laughs> no, mean, no. I, obviously, obviously, people will still be seeing stuff in theaters, but... I think it's going to increasingly just be the big budget stuff that gets those theatrical runs. And these smaller movies are more and more just going to go to Netflix or going to go to streaming are going to play festivals and then just kind of be like VOD or whatever. So I hope that's not the case, but I'm kind of thinking economically, that's probably where things are headed. Uh, I think you'd be surprised how things are going to get back to normal. Eventually it'll be a slow ramp, but, um, there have been, uh, there have been nasty sicknesses before True. and humanity always, you know, Bounces it's not back. an existential risk. Yeah. Let's hope not. <laughs> Let's not. hope not. Well, no, it's impossible. Uh, <laughs> listen to our stuff. You should know podcast on that. Um, you know, the last thing I did, and uh, I've mentioned this on the show before was in mid March for a birthday trip. Me and my friend Eddie went to Philly, DC and New York to see Bonnie Prince Billy and yes. Richmond. Yes. And that I had a similar experience, man, where it was like, when you go to a different city to do a, a concert or like you did like a movie, it's different than going on a vacation. Like uh, all we had to do all day was uh, walk around and enjoy ourselves and eat and drink and then be at the venue at totally. showtime. That's the and best. the next day we did that. We were at the venue. And after that third night, I was like, dude, I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow. Not getting up and going to see Bonnie Prince Billy. I perform. know. Yeah. Like, I wanted to keep following him until his tour stopped. Yeah, absolutely. I love Will Oldham. And, yeah, um, you know, he, I, I don't know if you're aware. He's the co-star of Old Joy. Yeah, dude, I've seen Old Joy. Okay, okay, all right, all right, all right. What kind of question is that? Um, I, I don't know. I, I thought when I when I slid that when I slid that in there, I thought I thought maybe that would be uh, the one you the one you went for. So I was surprised when you went Paranoid Park. Well, I went Paranoid Park because I hadn't seen it a, and Old Joy is so obscure <laughs> that uh, <laughs> uh, I felt like I had to go with with Gus Van Zandt on this one because he's you know to me a, a true artist. Uh, Filmmakers like him that that do achieve big successes in Hollywood eventually with uh, winning all the Oscar or I don't know right. I don't think he won the Oscar did he I know the guys did for, for the like script. Goodwill Hunting yeah yeah I think it was just screenplay that that won maybe maybe but, some yeah. acting stuff or yeah but you know major Hollywood accolades after oh, kind of yeah. starting out as a super indie yeah. guy with Drugstore Cowboy definitely and then became going back like to accepted into that whole world and yeah. then chose to kind of do something interesting with it do the cycle remake it, and totally. yeah, kind of stay true to his roots. Yeah. And I think his last couple have been a little more, uh, high profile though. Right. He had one called the sea of trees, which almost barely even came out with Matthew McConaughey actually in the yeah, lead yeah. about the, uh, the suicide forest in Japan. That's, oh. that's very well known. Um, I actually have not, it? I have not seen that one yet. It's, it's on the list. I will get to it eventually, but it's sort of, yeah. it played in can and then it just sort of like, disappeared and it came out in like a limited release maybe about a year or two later here in the states um but he has also made one with joaquin phoenix called don't right. worry he won't get far on foot which is great I didn't see that i is really good... really like that one yeah yeah man he's so good um before we get uh, going on paranoid park though how was the seven and a half hour film experience it was great it was actually they they did have it broken up it is broken up into 
three yeah, separate chunks. So <laughs> yeah. it's sort of like a two-hour film, a two-hour film, and a two-and-a-half-hour yeah. film kind of when you're, when you're sitting through it, something like that. So they had intermissions? They had intermissions of uh-huh. about like 15 minutes, and yeah, yeah. there was like a Starbucks right next door to the theater, so we would like run out, go to the Starbucks, like pound uh-huh. some caffeine, <laughs> run to the bathroom, and then run back and get in our seats and like start it again. That's and great. And we'd have like, you know, just like a few minutes in line to kind of talk about what we had just seen and what we right. think is going to be coming. And it was a really cool way to to um, to watch yeah. that film. Like I said, I mean, there's there's absolutely nothing can compare to that versus just like seeing at home and right. being tempted to look at your phone every five minutes I and know. phone calls and all the rest of it. So yeah. um, I, I would say actually... My favorite Bellatar film is still probably uh, Verkmeister Harmonies, which he made about five years after that, and which is only mm-hmm. like a two and a half, maybe three hour film. And it does many of the same things, but it does them in a much more condensed, yeah, focused way. Yeah, yeah. Whereas sometimes in Satan Tango, I was never bored necessarily, but there were scenes where I was like, okay, you could have cut like five minutes ago and I would have gotten the point of what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. But um you know, as long sure. as you keep the mentality that you're going to just hang in there, then um, yeah. you kind of have to surrender to it. And it was cool because the whole audience was obviously very self-selecting. Everybody that was there was there oh, yeah. to like reckon with this movie. Yeah, and no so, one walked in by accident. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so everybody was very respectful. No one's on their phone or making noise yeah. or anything like that. That's so, cool. you know, we were all just kind of in it together. And yeah, it was it was a really cool experience. And I did like the film, but um like I said, uh, surprisingly, I didn't think it was like his masterpiece. I think he's done better um, in other in other films. I'm going to put that down on the old list. Uh, for people listening, uh, we're saying his name kind of fast. It's B-E-L-L-A, I think T-A-R-R. One, one L, yeah. B-E-L-A-T-A-R. Uh, with Tar yeah. with two R's. And, uh, and it was a sidetrack, but as you mentioned, Gus Van Zandt has been very uh, open and... Um, respectful of the fact yes. that he really influenced sort of this period in his filmmaking career. Yeah. And, and Satan Tango right now, even, I think you can rent it on streaming the restoration version. Uh, and there will be like a physical Blu-ray release, I think yeah. later in the year or maybe next year it might be delayed because of all this stuff, but yeah. Right. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. 
with the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes... I guess identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, all right, everyone. So Paranoid Park is the Gus Van Zant film from 2007, uh, written and directed by Gus Van Zant from the novel by uh, what's Blake his Nelson. Face? Not Tim Blake Nelson. Who is not Tim Blake Nelson, <laughs> who I always want to say it's by Tim Blake Nelson. It is not. Yeah, it is by Blake a different Nelson. guy named Blake Nelson. Yeah. Uh, and it is a film about a, um, a murder that happens in Portland, Oregon, and a... Uh, a group of young skateboarder kids and in particular one uh, who is the protagonist of the film and just how, uh, how he might may or may not be involved yeah. and there are going to be spoilers. I don't know why I bothered to say that. I never do. <laughs> uh, but um, you know, it's uh it was great. I oh, loved it. Good. It's good. About an hour and 20 minutes long. Yeah. It's um, nice and tight. It's, it's does not yeah. overstay its welcome at all, which I think, especially for films like this that have these kind of, they're spacey, they're experimental. Uh-huh. Um, there's there's long kind of slow motion sequences with yeah, just music man. playing and so on. Just beautiful. Um, but the fact that it's it's so short overall yeah, really just helps. kind of like leaves you wanting more. You're you're very like I don't know, it just it just gets it gets in, it gets out, it does what it needs to do, and it, it kind yeah. of leaves you just like wanting more of that, which I think is a great way for a film to to go about. So many films these days, I think, could easily Too lose 20, much. 30 minutes, you know? Yeah, I totally agree, man. That's been one of the biggest changes in filmmaking, I think, over the last, like, 15 years is, uh, and, and, you know, especially with comedies being too long. And yes. uh, there's a, a certain filmmaker that I won't uh-huh. blame. We but, both uh, know who we're talking about. And his uh, new film, people people already are talking about the length of his new film because I think it's in the two and a half hour range. Uh, and so, you know, just all the kind of um, snarky comments so on Twitter indulgent. and so on. Like, you know, do you really need two and a half hours to tell the story of XYZ? I don't know. Yeah. And if you don't know who we're talking about, um, everyone, <laughs> it's, it's Judd Apatow. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> who I love, you know, I love his movies. I just... I think he's I think he's being a little indulgent with these two and a half hour comedies. You yeah. don't need two and a half hours to tell a story. No, no. 
No, I mean, um, it's, it, it's amazing what can be done in, in a much more condensed part of time. And I, partly yeah. that is what makes cinema great versus these like, you know, 18 hour episodic TV dramas, sure. which are great too. Uh-huh. But being able to say everything you want to say to establish character and narrative mm. and do it all in like that compact 90 minutes is yeah. just that is that is what differentiates cinema from from television in a large extent. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. To to uh, to pack in really um, fully realized character arcs for multiple characters inside an hour and twenty minutes or an hour and a half is uh, is very impressive. Yeah. and uh, it's tough to do as someone. And you've written stuff too. It's uh, it's hard. Yeah, it's very very hard. <laughs> you just you have a tendency to want to stretch things out, and you have to. Yeah. Instead of having like the five scenes that all say the same thing, more or less, you just got to right. find the one and yeah. really hone in on that and say everything you have to say. So, you know, it's easy to do, Casey, write a shitty screenplay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. I've, I've written them before. Oh, yeah. And I've written a couple that I think are pretty good. Um, all right. So this movie opens up and we'll, we'll be jumping all around. But um, I did want to mention the opening shot just because it was so cool. That great shot of Portland, uh, of the bridge there, the, bridge, the Willamette yeah. River. Yeah. And it, it was... Uh, and this brings up a larger point. It was set in fast motion. Yes. Even though it's a static shot, so it's not hectic. Um, but it, it sets up this – and this is not an insult. The best way I can describe this movie is it felt like the best student film I'd ever seen Absolutely. in my life. That's, that's what this whole period of his filmmaking feels like to me. It feels like the kind of stuff that when you are a film student – and you're just getting your hands on the tools for the first time. Yeah. Let me do this. Let me and do you, this. And you're just like, this. I want to do a tracking <laughs> shot. I want to do time lapse. I want to do slow yeah. motion. I, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it, it really does feel like he he kind of rediscovered that that joy in the simplicity, in a way, uh-huh. of just like the camera in a space with a few actors, and and just what the possibilities are of what can be done just by moving the camera or not moving the camera, yeah. and. Um, yeah, I love that 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 bridge time lapse shot. It kind of it has that very dreamy music that is um, yeah. it's from a Fellini film. It's uh, composed by Nino Rota, and it comes from mostly um, Juliet of the Spirits. Uh-huh. There's also one track from Amar Chord in the film. Um, yeah, but but the it's almost even that's kind of contrasting in a way because it has this dreamy floating kind of feel. Yeah, but the motion is all sped up in time lapse and. He did that a lot. There was a lot of, uh, I mean, the music is factors in huge in this movie um, from, you know, bookending the movie with two full songs from Elliot Smith, yeah. which I, I'm, you know, a, a, a total uh, fanatic for yeah, Elliot Smith, yeah. always have been, uh, to uh, the way he uses these um, these classical sort of upbeat romantic classical scores yes. in, the third, in the third act juxtaposed against... You know the the scene that really stands out is the breakup scene. Yes, with with the the main character and his. I mean, I guess it's his girlfriend. And you know, the whole thing is in is in silence. Uh, all you see is her mad at him. Yeah, uh, you don't see his. It's just that one take of her pers- or not her perspective, but her. It's her like face. over his shoulder, kind of, and you're seeing yeah. her face. And it's great because you know, if, if you've been paying attention, you know that this is like the breakup scene. You know that's yeah. what he's going to do. And you can see from his, from her reaction, you can almost read her lips and kind of like gather mostly what she's saying, you know, totally. like, how can you do this? You think you can just, you know. Hey, we got a visitor. Hey. <laughs> All right, Ruby, this has got to be Ruby. a quick one. Can you say hi to Casey? 
Hey, Ruby. Did you Hi. like Gus Van Zandt's Paranoid Park? Yeah. Right. Oh, that's great. It gets it gets the, the Ruby uh, stamp right, of approval. I love you. <laughs> uh, all right. So that's been happening a lot with, uh, with Ruby, yes. as you know. Yeah, I um, remember last time. Yeah, fun. she did not watch Paranoid Park, by the way. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's probably course. not age appropriate. Uh, or but or yeah, comprehensible man. even. That age. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She'd be like, when's uh, something going to yeah. happen? Yeah. Um, I should say, I would just wait, Ruby. A body gets cut in half. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's like one shot that's really gross. It's going to be cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, that was a great scene, the breakup scene, because um, the contrast of the music and, he, and it felt like a lot of that stuff really came on heavier in the third act. Yes. This sort of bouncy, classical, like romantic um, the one at the beginning with the Willamette River shot was the one thing I did think that gave it was this, it had this sort of noir edge yes, to it. Yes. Um, and this movie, it's interesting to think about this movie and a movie like Brick, mm-hmm. which are, have a little bit of the same DNA, I agree. but completely yeah. different execution. Yeah. But it is, it is sort of like he's, he's flirting with that genre a little bit. And I mm-hmm. think that's another thing that differentiates this film from the previous three that are a little bit more free form and not mm-hmm. really beholden to any genre other than just kind of quote unquote, the art film or the experimental film. Yeah. This one does have some genre elements that again, I think just give it that little bit of a hook, that mm-hmm. little bit of a grounding where it is a little bit of a whodunit, even though it's pretty obvious early on who did it and so on. You but, know, I didn't really feel that way actually. Really? Uh, as, Maybe as it's a first just because viewer. I've seen it like 10 times at this point. I, you know, um, to me, I feel like there is more or less a reveal before the big reveal, just based on his reactions and emotions and so on in some of the scenes. Yeah. To me, it, it tips over into he is truly guilty. Although I guess there is the question of whether he's guilty because he was there or he's guilty because That's he did what I it, thought. That kind of thing. Yeah. I thought he knew what had happened. Right, right. He's a good kid um, for the most part. He's uh, just for listeners at home. You know, the idea is that this kid is uh, he's a skater kid. He's hanging out at this. Uh, and by the way, I've been by the real skate park in Portland. Burnside? Yeah. Uh, Lance Bangs drove me by. No uh, kidding. To, yeah. On our way to dinner. I went wow. out to dinner with he and his son, uh, uh, Marshall, and he drove me by the Burnside thing because it was on the way to the restaurant. And he was like, oh, I think he even said. Yeah. Where Paranoid Park was filmed. That's so cool. Um so the kid is a good kid. He's hanging out this skate park that's kind of dangerous, yeah. and the culture over there is is a little scary. Um, obviously, drug use and shenanigans going on, and sort of lawlessness. No parents, no cops. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's that whole vibe of like divorced parents who are not paying attention, right? And exactly. All that sort of stuff. Yeah. And then we what we learned through the film, and it do, it didn't follow a traditional chronological narrative. It sort of hops around via this kind of cool device of his journal uh, entries as narration yeah and and which has got a great reveal we'll get to later but um there is a it turns out that uh, a security guard at a train yard has been killed and they have traced it back to the fact that he was killed by getting hit with a skateboard and falling on the train tracks and getting cut in half yeah by a train and uh, so that's the premise, and there's some questioning going on, and and you learn about, I guess about halfway or toward the third act, that this kid has actually done it. Yeah. He hopped a freight train with a bad kid, yep. and this guy came running after him, was kind of hitting him with a flashlight, and he just sort of hits him in the face with the skateboard, not even too hard, just right. to get him away. Exactly. And it's and it was an accident. Yeah. You know. 
it's funny, like I was thinking about it more, like how would that be regarded in like a criminal court? Would it be, was there even possibly a self-defense defense to be made there? Because he did hit them with the flashlight first, but it's true. They were, they were trespassing. So maybe because they broke the law originally. Yeah. I, so, I, what I see is a plea I mean, it's down to uh, yeah, involuntary manslaughter. It, it being an accident, you know. Yeah. 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 And, and like I said, he's a good but, kid. Um, yeah. He's a good kid who made a mistake. Uh, what I thought was interesting, and I didn't kind of pick up on this till toward the end, was uh, like a traditional movie, my, you, there's never any other mention of the guy he was with. True. Yeah. Like I kept waiting for there to be a search for him or him to yeah. like come back into the picture, but he just kind of runs off and that's it. I mean, that guy, I think got away clean, right? Like nobody really saw him totally. or knows yeah. about him. It, his name never came up. So, well, this he kid just gets like away a, clean. We yeah. think, right? Yes. Yes. That is true. But I mean, at least he gets pulled into questioning a few yeah. times and there is at least a little bit of a, a, a hint that he might be under more scrutiny than, than some of these other skate kids. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, the, the other kid, he's just like gone. So let's talk about that first questioning scene uh, with Detective Lou. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yes. One of the great interrogation scenes because yeah. it's uh, it's not like a typical interrogation scene. He's not playing the heavy. He's he's c- total good copying it. Right. Uh, and then I w- I'd, I'd like you to talk a little bit about what he does with the camera there because it's really interesting. So there's a really cool sequence just before where he's walking down. You know, he's been called to the office. And so he's walking down the hallway and then he arrives in the classroom and the mm-hmm. camera is kind of pointed off in the direction where you can't see the cop. It's looking at another part of the room. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's sort of like the first thing that um, Alex, the character, sees when he walks in. And then the camera suddenly kind of swings over, <laughs> reframes so that you see the cop and you see this long table. Mm-hmm. And he goes and sits at the table and then the camera just does this very, very slow dolly push forward yeah. where... You know, if if you know about filmmaking a little bit, you realize that they're they're having to kind of clear that stuff off the table as the camera is like yeah. pushing forward, pushing forward. And it's a pretty traditional just two shot pushing in. Yeah, but it keeps, and then it what keeps happens? going, it keeps going. <laughs> and then it's it's kind of framing them in a two shot. Uh-huh. And then at a certain point, it just goes off <clears throat> to the left and it, it just frames him up in so kind of a single close up. Yeah. And it stays on him for a really long time. Um, and then only after you know, probably a couple more minutes, does it finally cut to the reverse, which is again, like the one thing we should talk about is the, the aspect ratio of this film. Yeah. He shot this in the, in the square Academy ratio. So when you have a close up of a person, you don't really even see any of the environment around them. Yeah. You just see the face or you see maybe the head and the shoulders, but it's, it's very narrow and so it's it's very direct and confrontational. It it feels like something that comes more from almost like silent cinema. Yeah. Uh, it's very very intimate, and it's 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 sort of like you're looking at these beautiful portraits. There's um there's even like a this like like splash of bright light that goes across the cop's face where he's lit yeah. sort of like in a painting or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's just I, it's very very distinct, and it, to me the the light is almost a metaphor for like truth or something. It's it's yeah. the kind of like he's this apparently like pretty, pretty, um, genuinely, uh, benevolently motivated cop, you know, yeah. who's Seems just like out it. to find what's going on and he's not out to railroad anybody. He just wants to get to the bottom of it. No pun intended. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, um, and so, yeah. I don't and, know that I'd ever seen that shot before. I don't think I'd ever seen 
a, and not the whole thing, but even starting with that slow push in, like right. I said, it's a very traditional slow dolly in and yeah. then it just starts veering left yeah. and veering left until the detective is completely out of the shot. Yeah. And as I was watching it, you know, it's so slow and subtle. At first I was like, is this a mistake? Yeah. Well, so <laughs> but, much, so much in these so, films. It's such an unusual shot. It's, I mean, it, sometimes they do feel like mistakes, but they yeah. work, you know, and yeah. it's, it's, it's hard to, hard to fathom how, you know, as an artist, you can, you can have that kind of objectivity on your work to know that a mistake or something that would appear yeah. to be a mistake or amateurish or whatever is actually going to be really cool and fresh. And I think it's partly because so much of the film is so tightly aesthetically controlled and constructed yeah. that when there are these quote unquote mistakes that happen, they happen within a framework of precision and control mm -hmm. so that you as the viewer feel them, experience them as something deliberate, as a choice that's being made and not yeah. just like, you know, people who don't know what they're doing. It's interesting too on that, on that, that push in, you probably only would hear this on headphones if you're really listening closely, but there's actually a little bit of cell phone interference at one point. Oh, really? where, where somebody must have gotten a call. It's like that chick, 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 uh -huh. sound that you get. Yeah, yeah. And you can tell they kind That's of, funny. they try to filter it out as best as they could. But I thought it was really cool that they didn't just like loop that scene or yeah. use a different take or whatever. Like there was something about that particular take and that particular yeah, sound that, that he wanted. He, he was just like, That's the one we're using. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, like I, I compared it to the best student film I've ever seen. Like you were talking about all these things that could be mistakes or, you know, that he, he, he has his whole bag of tricks here. He's got soft focus. Yeah. He's got, you know, AKA it looks blurry. <laughs> yes. Um, very, very all, shallow depth of field. And sometimes yeah. like, sometimes the shots are even out of focus when they're quote unquote, supposed to be in focus. They'll, they'll be just, you know, an inch forward or back from where the plane of focus is. And so mm -hmm. it'll be like an eyelashes in focus, but the eye is not. And so on. Um, very, very interesting way of, of, um, isolating the, the, the viewer's attention. And yeah. again, something that I remember very well when I was kind of getting into filmmaking at the beginning for the, for, you know, not for the first time, cause that was on VHS, but for the first time more seriously in college, yeah. um, that was right in the era where digital SLRs were starting to shoot video. Yeah. And so you could use these like full frame cameras, like the 5d and get that insanely shallow depth of field mm -hmm. with these big lenses and big sensors that were really impossible on video before then. You always yeah. had, it was just deep focus all the time. So a game changer. one thing that you saw in like so many student films and short films in general of that period, everybody shot wide open, yeah. you know, everybody shot available light, everybody just like, you know, put the longest lens on that they could find because everybody was so obsessed with that shallow depth of field, bokeh heavy kind of look, because it's very beautiful. But yeah. we, you know, it also became extremely overused very quickly. Yeah. Uh, it's one of those things where it's another tool to have in the kit, but you have to know when and why to use it. And I think he yeah. uses it very, very deliberately and very well in this film. Yeah. I mean, everything in here that I'm likening to student film stuff is different in the hands of a master filmmaker. Right, right. And that's kind of what you were saying. Like, um, knowing when to utilize it, knowing how long to utilize it, knowing what your what salad you're building from the yeah, beginning yeah. and not, and I guess, you know, I'm sure being open to ideas on the day, but this feels like a film cinematically that was very well thought out. 
It, yeah, it seems like it would have to be because this does not feel like a film. I mean, there's never really any scenes that are, have like quote unquote coverage, you know? Yeah, it's I don't all, I was wondering about coverage. I mean, there's maybe like it. one or two shot reverse shot kind of constructions, but even yeah. those feel very deliberate when it cuts from one side to the other. Like right. in that interrogation scene, it's a very deliberate moment that he chooses to finally cut to the, the police guy. Um so it, it's not a film that could be quote unquote found in the editing room in that way. Right. You know, these scenes probably only have one way that you could actually cut them and have it make any sense. Um, you could restructure the order of the scenes, but you couldn't yeah. really within the scenes themselves, you would kind of just be stuck with whatever it was you shot on the day. Yeah. And the other interesting thing he does a few times is like we were talking about in the breakup scene, he does what would normally be, um, just a regular over-the-shoulder shot of one character's face while the other character is, you know, off-screen having a conversation. And what traditionally you do is you do that from both shoulders right. of both characters. You shoot a master, you know, you shoot your wide, and then you cut between those at least those three, maybe sure, more sure. if yeah. you got time and money. Absolutely. But he he has a few scenes where it's just that one perspective and point of view, uh, and you keep waiting for the camera to cut to the reverse. And it doesn't. And I think it's, you know, it's really interesting. There's a great moment where it's the second time we see the the cop and he's there to interrogate like a larger group of the kids, not yeah. even interrogate, but just to kind of introduce himself a great and, scene. Yeah. and, uh, and hand out that the grisly photos of the, of the crime scene to kind of spook everybody a little bit, yeah, but which worked when you first see him, the, the cop, He's standing, he's overlapped by somebody else who's covering up his entire face. All you see is like his bald head and his ear. And the yeah. camera stays on that for like probably a good 30 seconds. And then it kind of pans down and it kind of like racks to focus on some of the kids who are sitting in the desk. But again, it, it's that kind of like fragmented perspective that feels like it's almost like maybe Alex's POV. Like when he yeah. first, like the the thing that stuck in his memory was not like, the full on shot of the cop. It's just like the ear and the bald head. And, and that was yeah. enough to tell him that like, Oh, it's this guy or something. Yeah. And there's, there's so much of the film that is, is just like subtly done like that is artfully chosen to kind of put the film in his perspective in his subjectivity and, yeah. and, and kind of get us inside of his head, his, his sort of like paranoid state of mind. Yeah. And you know, before that interrogation scene is one of the favorite, uh, my favorite shots of the movie it's uh, the the initially the one boy gets called out of class again to come down and uh, meet with this detective. And as he's going, it's in slow motion. He keeps it's like the wild bunch or something. He's yeah. going down this big hallway and all these all these skater kids. Yes. Keep, pop, they keep popping out him. of various yeah. classrooms and yeah. joining him. It's such a cool shot. Yeah. There's some really interesting stuff, too, with um, with exposure in this film where. Yeah. Um, they will they will deliberately way overexpose or way underexpose yeah. something or even change the exposure during or the ramp shot. Ramp it, yeah. Yeah, ramp it in a way that's very visible. It's not like they're just trying to move from indoors to outdoors or something. It's it's literally like a, a static shot um, where they'll just ramp down the exposure where suddenly somebody that was fully lit just becomes a silhouette um, and so on. And yeah, that shot after the hot tub scene yes, in particular. Yeah, when he's we had that beautiful and, like clouds oh, in the background and it's gorgeous. Yeah, and there's some great dialogue over the top of that tube where they're talking about you know um, uh, why why people why adults do what they do why yeah. you know uh, that a cop uh, in in this kid's words makes less than a janitor and so on and yeah. um, and so one of the great. kids replies to that you know. 
no, no, no. Adults only do things for money. That's like the only reason adults yeah. do anything is for money. <laughs> and it's over this, this, yeah, it's, and it's, it's this kind of like throwaway moment in a way, but again, it's yeah. not because it's very thematically resonant with the rest of the film. But I love those kind of like little pauses where it just becomes this kind of like painting or, or just this beautiful visual tableau yeah. that we just kind of pause and take in. And it's so well paced that when those moments arrive again, like, I, I never really have that feeling of like restlessness or that he's going back to it too many times. They're parceled yeah. out really, really well during the film. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I think maybe now we should talk a little bit about Gus Van Zant and his, uh, his mastery of working with non-actors yeah. and working with kids yeah. and, and kid non-actors. Sure. Um, it's something he started doing. Jeez, uh, I guess I'm trying to think of the first movie where he had, was like, it Elephant? Act- Certainly by Elephant, yeah. I'm wondering if he if he did it even before then. I mean, Malinoche, his very very first film. I don't think right. that, that lead was was that like one. a. I'm pretty sure that lead was was not like a professional actor. Um, yeah, but certainly an Elephant. Um, yeah, I mean, what he does is just for the listeners is for these movies for this and Elephant at least he has uh, for this one he used MySpace. And he just puts an ad up and or, you know, the equivalent would be flyers in a community right, right. and says, come on down and try out. He wants non-actors. Um, you can tell they're non-actors, yeah. but in a good way, you know, in the best way that non-actors are always used, which is they're not acting. It's it's really interesting, like because the the lead um, who's played, I think his name is Gabe, Gabe Nevins. Um, he he has to do a decent amount of voiceover. And and when yeah. he's reading the voiceover, he reads it in this very kind of flat way that doesn't awkward, have yeah. it doesn't have like the rhythm or the musicality of the way we're used to hearing voiceover. And even me, like who's not an actor, like I can I can kind of hear that. Yeah. And if I were asked to read the same thing, there would be a way that I would read it that would sound more like a movie or something. But this sounds like a book report or, or yeah, something. I love. But actually, I love the the kind of like flatness of it. Totally. Um, because it just it feels more genuine in a way. He's not performing. He's just a kid, you know, um, reciting this stuff. And it, it reminds you in a way, because so often in films, like child actors are too trained. They're too, they're usually the worst, you know, and (laughs) they stand out because kids in real life are, are nothing like that. And, um, and so there's a real, like what I think what it gives you especially is a sense of his, like his youth, his innocence, his vulnerability. And, and it's, it makes such a, such a, a stark contrast with the the seriousness of what he's gotten himself into. And it makes it that much more powerful. It would not be nearly as powerful if he seemed like a kind of like, you know, um, smarter than his age. Um, yeah, it, it would completely, yeah, it would, it would completely change the, the feeling. It would, it would probably make him seem a little bit more sinister or something. But yeah. the fact that he is just kind of like this kid who bumbled his way into this thing. Um, and, and now he's, 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 being hit with all these like big time adult grown up terrifying realities. Um, it just makes it that much more powerful. I think. Do you know the story of that kid? Did you look into him a little bit? I heard that after filming, he was, you know, had some, some problems, I think. Yeah. So he, uh, he met a photographer on set, a still photographer shooting this movie. And, uh, he, 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 after this movie kind of, stumbled into drug use and homelessness and some mental illness and just sort of had a really bad run of it. I don't think yeah. right after this, he did a couple, a few more movies after this, right, but very, right. very low key. Uh, and this photographer ended up 
kind of befriending him, this adult uh, photographer, and taking making a photo book of him. Yeah. And I think it's even called Gabe. I uh, think, yeah. I, I, I did not look at this when I was looking, uh, when I was preparing for this yesterday, but I do remember seeing that at some point, reading like a blog post or something about it and seeing some of the photographs and... Yeah, there's um, a good fader yeah. interview with him. Yeah. And uh, there is a... they get a quote from Gabe Nevins like today, uh, but they weren't able to interview him because they couldn't really find, I think he was in prison uh, mm, actually wow. when this came out like wow. five or six years ago. Right. And, um, but there were questions of whether or not this photographer was bordering on exploitation uh, because it was this kid who ended up homeless and on sure, drugs sure. and there were uh, nudes. And he was like, I, you know, I was very conscious of that and I did not want to veer into that territory. And Gabe Nevins was like, no, it's not. I was way down with all of it. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting cause it shows him kind of growing up and it shows him kind of wrecked at a certain point. Yeah. And, uh, I saw some of the stills. I mean, I'd be interested to see the whole book though. It's a very sad story. Do you know, do you know the work of uh, Larry Clark much? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, Gus Van Sant was a producer on kids. His, yeah, um, I mean, this his was kids-esque. Film. And then, you know, even Larry Clark, his, his photographic work, he made this yeah. book called Tulsa, yep. which is like him photographing his friends in this like small town mm-hmm. and they're you know going from just being kind of wild teenagers to like serious drug addicts to like yeah. dead in a lot of cases yeah. or shot or or whatever and there's there's that same kind of question ethically of like are you exploiting these people are you kind yeah. of aestheticizing their their poverty their their drug addiction and so on um but I think in, in both cases, what, what comes across more is like a sincerity and it's just like yeah. depic- depicting life as it is, telling yeah. somebody's story, yep. not, a, not a pretty story, but it's telling real, their story uh-huh. and not trying to um, embellish it, but just kind of show it for what it is. Yeah. I don't think Larry Clark got rich off of Tulsa. No, no, no. Uh, no. You know, it'd be one thing if you were exploiting people for like great riches, but yeah. not every story is pretty. And I think there is value in seeing sort of the what can happen to people, you know, it's powerful. Yeah. Um, the other thing this movie really is, and, uh, is it's a love letter to skateboarding. Absolutely. I, 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 you can almost call it a skateboarding movie. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of skate video kind of in the film. Gorgeous, gorgeous skate video. Yeah. And clearly a love letter from Gus Van Zandt's point of view, because he was, he used to skateboard and stuff like, it's clear that whoever made this movie, if you don't know anything about it, loves skateboarding. Yeah. And, and just like, again, like the, I love that they, I think, I think a lot of it was shot on super eight, the skateboarding stuff. It was. Yeah. And, um, it it just, it gives it this, this kind of, it's sort of in the film, but also outside the film a little bit. Um, one thing I actually picked up for the first time last night when I was watching is the last bit of skate footage that is in the movie, like the kind of amateur super eight skate footage. Yeah. You actually see Gabe for a second appear. Um, so it's, it's, it's his way of sort of almost being inserted into this kind of alternate, oh, you know, parallel reality or something. Um, because, you know, in, in all the other cases, it's kind of, it's, it's very close to his reality, but it's somehow separate a little bit. Right. It yeah. has more of a documentary feel or something, but then to kind of see him inserted into it at the end, kind of combine the two together in a cool That's way. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, just so many beautiful uh, shots of, uh, skating through these big giant tubes and on the ramps. And then they have that, just the best one of all, that great lockdown shot with all the guys in slow motion yes, yes. coming up over the ramp, like yeah. one after the other, yeah. after, after the other. It was just gorgeous, gorgeous shot. And again, very shallow depth of field. So they're all yeah. kind of having to hit the same mark in the air and yeah. then come back down. And so then the cool. last guy kind of like 
doesn't doesn't pull it off and he like you hear him kind of crash in the after yeah. it cuts away you hear him crash in the in the distance yeah yeah and it's cool too because like if you if you were ever a skater like or just know about it it's all about it's all about your personal style and your flair and like it's a beautiful shot but each one of those dudes you know, gets to do his own thing too. Yeah, like yeah. everyone has their own way of doing their jump and what they do with their hands and the face yeah. they're making. And it's all about your style. And it's, it's a really cool showcase of that. I think that culture. Absolutely. And it's, it's cool too, because like, you know, just, just on paper, you might think like a murder mystery taking place around a skate park and mm-hmm. all the skaters are like suspects. You might think this is going to be like an after school special or something yeah. where it's like, stay away from those dangerous skate kids or something, but right. it's actually a very loving portrait of these kids in, in a very yeah. like, you know, through, through the story, it acknowledges like all the, all the sort of like reasons that these kids would have for looking for basically a family outside their own for a sense yeah. of community and connection. And, um, you know, all that, it just, it brings so much about like high school back to me of that, that feeling yeah. of belonging or not belonging. I was not really a skate, a skate kid at all, but that was like a group that I definitely clocked when I was in, yeah. in high school and like even wanted to be friends with those kids. And yeah, so on. they're cool. Yeah. S- skater kids are just fucking cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's funny. Cause I'm like, uh, Ruby is, if she's ever shown natural talents at anything from the beginning, it was on her little scooter. Yeah. Like from a very, very young age when other kids were just sort of like figuring out how to get on it, she was doing tricks and like had some style and flair. Yeah. And then she got to where she she saw the skaters in the skate park uh, next to the playground here in Decatur, and she started standing sideways, started standing on her scooter, <laughs> skateboard style. Wow. And so I was like, man, maybe that's the thing. Like yeah. they have girls, they have a girl skater camp in the summer in Seattle. It's like we could take her there, spend oh, a week yeah. in Seattle. But then I started thinking, and it's so wrongheaded <laughs> to go down the bad avenue, but like, I, I was a little skater kid in a way growing up. I, I didn't, I wasn't in it for too long, but you know, I know what happens at skate parks. It's not right. as bad as this movie, yeah, but yeah, yeah. those are the kids who are getting into weed at 14 oh, yeah. years old oh, yeah. and drinking, They're uh, grown up, grown up fast. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, but then I was like, you know, you can't live in fear like that and just say like, no, you've got to go to gymnastics. Yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll see what happens. I, I imagine, I mean, it's probably a little more wholesome these days than it was in previous eras. Maybe that, maybe I'm wrong on that. But. Oh, dude, I got that playground. I smell weed coming from that skate really? park every time. Yeah. The, uh, the, uh, the old fourth ward, uh, skate park or no, the oh, one okay, over, the there's indicator. one in Decatur. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. But, uh, you know, you just, you can't like lock your kids up and prevent them from being exposed to badness. That's, that's the thing. So gotta, we'll see. At some point they've got to interface with the real world. She could also be super good at it and get sponsored and go That's, to the X there Games you go. and make a shit ton of money. <laughs> meet, meet Tony Hawk and all that. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, there yeah. are there is a skater in this movie. Uh, the character who plays his dad is mm-hmm. a is a former oh, skater. Oh, cool. Very cool. Which you can kind of tell he's a non actor. He's all tatted he's got the up. Tats. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, there's. Uh, that's a good time to mention that the parents. He almost does a Charlie Brown thing in this movie, where big you, time. Don't you get to see the detective, mm-hmm. but almost all the other adults, there's a, a teacher that you get or a, a administrator that you get to see her face a little bit. Yeah. But with the with the mom and the dad, you rarely ever see their face in focus at all. The mom is like she's she's way in the distance in that shot where she comes down the stairs when he's down yeah. in his room. Um, or from behind. Then, yeah, exactly. When when they go back upstairs, it's over her shoulder, so you just see the back of her head kind of out yeah. of focus. The dad is completely out of focus 
for a long time in that sequence where they're talking in the laundry and they're, room. And yeah. And there's sort yeah. of like, he's, he's trying to connect and they're not really connecting. And then finally, when he kind of like, he turns it around again and he's like, Hey, you know, really, I'm serious. Like this yeah. whole situation sucks and I really want to make the best With of what divorce. we can. Yeah. Then he's, he's kind of in focus and they actually do, it seems like have like a, a moment for, for a second there of recognition. Yeah, and I'm and that was no accident. It kind of mirrors the conversation. He comes into focus as their relationship comes more into focus. Yes. Um, but I thought I, it was a good thing. Like, uh, I've seen enough of Elephant to know that it sort of was the same bag. Wasn't it pretty much fully from the children's point of view? Yeah, Elephant is. It does the same thing with, with the kind of the, the shallow depth of field. Um, it, oftentimes filming people from the back, which is very interesting. Yeah. Um, tracking tracking down these um these long corridors of the high school mm-hmm. and um it, it has a very sinister quality to it Ele- elephants are much more elephants a movie i struggle with because I, I think when i first saw it i really really loved it uh it was like my my maybe first year of college when that came out 2002 2003 yeah and um i guess second year of college whatever but as i've as i've watched it more as I've gotten older, mm-hmm. it's gotten harder to watch for me. Yeah, sure. because when I was when I was first seeing it, I was only a couple years removed from being in high school. Yeah, and so I basically identified with those kids with that situation. Well, you grew up um, in the Columbine era, you know. Exactly, Columbine happened when I was in eighth grade, about to go Jesus. to ninth grade. So it was sort of like welcome to high school. Now we have yeah. shootings, you know. And right. it was it was, it, and that's the thing too is that. In that era, it was just Columbine, you know, yeah. Columbine was like this singular, yeah. horrible thing that we all knew about. And it was sort of like a never again, you know, you didn't have active shooter drills. Exactly. And stuff like that. This, yeah. this, this awful thing that happened this one time. And then, you know, now when I watch it today, I'm older, I'm not the age of those kids anymore. And, I, you know, it's, it's not really the film's fault, but I understand intellectually that this is just something that happens, unfortunately, very often, you know, in this country. And in a way it kind of robs the film of, of, of a, of a meaning in a way, yeah. because it's not about this one singular event. It's just about this horribly banal thing that, that happens over and over. Yeah. And it's sort of, there's, there's more of like a nihilism to it because there's, it's not like this bad thing that happened one time that we learned from. It's just kind of this it's like, it's like, you know, a car accident or something. It just, it right. happens. It happens all the time. And so some of the things that that film does in terms of building the suspense and so on uh-huh. feels really icky when you realize that it's about something so real. Right. But yet he's, he's using kind of these filmic conventions of building yeah. suspense and, um, you know, playing with the audience's emotions in a way. Cause you that, know, it's coming. Yeah. That, that yeah. feels, cause I mean that the whole film is like this incredibly slow build up to the event and you know, going in that that's, what's going to happen. And it's like watching a train wreck in slow motion, you know, yeah. and a very, a very beautiful train wreck with like beautiful music and absolutely gorgeous cinematography and so on. Um, I mean, it's, it's probably one of my favorite shot films ever. Yeah. Um, just I'm amazing. See it. I've seen pieces of it was, uh, and I've seen pieces of last days too. Was that was, overall, was that good? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I don't have a bad word to say really about any of these films in, of this period, other than, you know, the, it, it, elephant is, is a little difficult now. Yeah. Um, but not really, not necessarily the film's fault. Last days, I think is a little bit more, it's less of the fluid, like long takes and a little bit more on the side of 
fragmented timelines and locked off shots. Gotcha. Um, he's yeah. referencing this uh, Chantal Ackerman film, Jean Dielman, um, quite a bit in that film. Jean Dielman is a is a three hour plus film, basically about a woman alone by herself in her apartment, mm-hmm. in her kitchen, doing housework and washing dishes and <laughs> other other stuff happens. But it was it was like this really powerful uh, kind of feminist statement back in the seventies about, oh, cool. you know, domesticity and, and women yeah. and, and so on. Um, and so he's referencing that quite a bit in, in last days in sort of just leaving the camera on and, and kind of playing, uh, with boredom with, with duration and so on in a way that right. elephant and uh, paranoid park don't do so much. Yeah. And in, uh, imagine in last days, it's the, uh, the, the prison of celebrity, which uh, right. was sort of Kurt Cobain's, you know, part of his downfall. Yeah. The prison celebrity, the hangers on the people that right. are supposed to be your friends, but they're, they're not. Yeah. And, and the people that really are trying to do something are kind of kept at arm's length and, and all that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to finish up the second half of Gus Van Zandt's career in the next yes. couple of weeks. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes... I guess identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? 
That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, I want to talk for a sec, too, about another one of my favorite shots, the shower shot. Yes. Uh, It's after... um, Well, so what happens is uh, there's a... An odd, not an odd, but just a non-conventional timeline in this movie. Uh, and about halfway through, like I said, it's revealed that this kid is actually responsible, and it goes to that night. Yeah, shows what happened. Uh, there is one really gross shot of a dude cut in half. Yeah. That's, uh, I'm glad it was in there because it was very impactful, and like yeah. you kind of had to see it. Right. Um, and then he goes. He tosses the skateboard into the Willamette River, which is uh, ends up being evidence because they find it. Um, and then realizes he has blood and, and stuff on his clothes. And they even say they've got some DNA on, on the board, maybe. Right, exactly. Um, and then they, uh, yeah. he's got his clothes that he's got rid of, goes home, bags them up, and then gets in the shower, very disturbed. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful slow motion uh, shot where he plays with exposure again. And the sound, too, because yeah. he has all these, like, it's this weird field recording of, like, birds singing and nature yeah. sounds. And... Um, and insects and so on. There was and a bird on the on wallpaper. For, yes, yes, I know. <laughs> yeah. I noticed that too. And it's interesting too. It, it seems like they're they're playing with the exposure, but I think they're also moving a light physically in the room uh, because maybe. the directionality of the shadow on the wall kind of changes too. It sort yeah. of ramps across. That's right, because um, it looked like somebody. I thought someone was going to get in the shower yeah, with them at yeah, one yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That must. That was what that was. I think. Yeah. So it's it's a very unnerving shot. The way that the water. The, the these individual like strands of, of yeah. water falling from his hair because he has this long hair with all these kind of interesting points on it uh-huh. where the water can fall and so in slow motion the water is like this solid kind of yeah so cool thing and it just he he looks like an alien or something it's very very unnerving yeah and um and of course you know metaphorically the idea of like showering to get clean and to kind of yeah. wash away the sin or the or the 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 the, the blood or or yeah, the guilt the guilt exactly um. Yeah, such a such a powerful shot and such a, a kind of thing that obviously in a novel you would just have sort of conventional like he was worried, he felt guilty, yeah. he was panicking and so on. But to show it visually without saying anything, to just yeah. know that w- what we're observing is is maybe one of the darkest moments of his life of him really fully reckoning. Yeah. Like, because in the immediate aftermath, it's just pure shock. It's like survival, fight or flight kind of thing. Yeah. Where he's just trying to get rid of the evidence and get home and, and figure out what he's going to do. But then once he finally gets in the shower, that's when he has a moment to kind of yeah. you know, breathe and like really process a little bit of what's happened. And it, yeah, yeah it's, it's so powerful. Which is something that, like, uh, I don't know if I'll go so far as to say it, but it's a trope, but. That scene has been in a lot of films yes. where oh, yeah. a bad thing happens. They're very adrenalinely, that's not a word, <laughs> dealing with the immediate aftermath. Right. And then there's a point where they slow down and then it hits them and they break down. Yeah. And this, it's just done in such a great way. It, it doesn't feel tired at all. Um, you know, it's such a slow shot that builds from 
him just getting in the shower, yeah. his dry hair go- getting wet to soaking to the waterfall. And then yeah. he eventually, you, you don't see his face because he's got his hands over it, but you can tell he's crying yeah. yeah, and just hits against the side of the wall and slowly slides down out of frame. Yeah. Just really, really beautiful shot. And it's, it's interesting too, because you see it, you see a, a, a brief moment of that, of him taking the shower anyway, you see earlier in the film yeah. because he kind of goes through the events of that night. It's almost like, different drafts or like he's he's kind of like passing over at once and he just completely avoids what really happened you know yeah. he just he, he kind of skips forward and he just says later that night you know i had to change my clothes and da 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 yeah. and he gets in the shower for a second and then the second or third time through we kind of you know we see what actually happened at the at the at the train and um and then we see the shower in full and we realize that we're now fully within um you know, his perspective of, of right. that, of that the moment sort of correct timeline or not timeline, but just yeah. the correct order of events. And one thing um, that I clocked last night too, was that, um, when he's, when you see him in all these scenes where he's, uh, writing the journal, you know, yeah. writing on the, on, in uh, pencil on paper, um, there's a moment where, uh, like in the beginning of the film, he's, he's by himself, he's writing, um, his uncle, who's actually played by the cinematographer, Christopher Doyle. Right. Yeah. He comes in and switches on a light and says, what are you writing? And he's just like, oh, just schoolwork. And he kind of goes into the room and closes his door. And then he's in that room and he's kind of just writing for a while. Then at a certain point, I feel like he actually switches on the light, like on the the lamp that's on the desk there with him. Yeah. And I feel like actually, if you if you go back and you look at those scenes, I think there's a little bit of a progression of the lamp being off to the lamp being on and him getting a little bit more honest or a little bit more like exhaustive in the detail of what he's writing about. Right. Um. So there's there's a little bit of a visual metaphor there too to kind of indicate that over over time he's becoming more um just open about about yeah. what he's writing and what he's kind of confessing to. Oh totally. Um and the other thing that that scene uh where it shows the reality of what happened that night uh calls back is back to that great opening interrogation scene in the library uh when you realize that he was lying the whole time when he gives him this yeah, really yeah. really tight believable story about what happened he's not nervous he's like so like when the uh investigator is questioning him he's really he's doing it in a good cop way but if you have ever heard a cop ask questions like that He's trying to trip him up a little bit. Exactly. He's saying, he's asking him very quickly, like, what'd you eat? Would you go to Subway? You got the receipt? What'd you have on it? And yeah. this kid is just nails it. And I believed him. That's why I didn't mm-hmm. think it tipped into he's super, guilty. Yeah, he's super it casual about it. Totally believable to me and not nervous at all. Yeah, totally there's, there's a moment where up. he's like, uh, uh, you know, do you get mayo? He's like, no, 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 mayo's sick. He's like, gotta have mayo. No, 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 can't have mayo. Like they <laughs> have know. like a real nice back and forth and it's not the kind of thing you would expect somebody yeah. in that in that predicament to be able to they'd be you would think they'd be a lot more defensive about it or something like you know no right you, you don't keep receipts who keeps subway receipts but he's very casual about like no he keeps you keep subway receipts but he's he's lighthearted about it yeah yeah it's almost like in the way he is going into that scene and is pre that point in the movie where you know he did it and i think he even writes something about blocking it out it's mm-hmm. almost like he has no memory of doing it until right. he sees that picture yeah in the second interrogation and he even says something about that it all came back to him or something it's like yeah it's like a repressed memory almost yeah. he's, he's compartmentalized it and, until that he can kind of process it and and yeah it is it is seeing those images that that takes him back to that moment yeah and it's interesting like later you know when when the big reveal does happen in the film um 
and he's he's sort of he has that moment where he's actually looking down at the guy who's been cut in half and the guy's looking up at him because yeah, he's still man. got a few seconds of consciousness so fucked up <laughs> and it you know it probably it probably would not have lasted as long as it lasts in the film but it's almost a suspended moment in time yeah where it's like time stopped and he and he felt like they had this back and forth exchange where they looked at each other in the eyes and so on. Who knows if that really quote unquote happened. Yeah. But then at that moment, there's like this uh, beautiful choral uh, Beethoven music yeah. playing from the night symphony. And it actually cuts back to the interrogation scene. And again, it's like the, the, that slash of light going across the, the cop's face. It's sort of like here is revealed, you know, yeah. the, 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 the full truth of this, of this situation. It's yeah. I love, I love the way the, the, the film plays with chronology and, and kind of uses what he says is like his poor creative writing ability right. as a kind of justification for why he hops around so much in his, in his memory. Yeah. And the cool reveal that I mentioned earlier about this journal is that we learn sort of toward the end of the film. Uh, he has this other friend uh, named Macy played by yeah. Lauren McKinney. Uh, I assume another non-actor who does a great, great job. She's really good actually. Yeah. She, like she even, is. She's even in like a conventional acting way, I think she's very, very believable. Yeah. Um, she, uh, we learn toward the end that she is the one that had told him to write a journal. Yeah. Uh, and he, and that is the reason, you know, if you look at it from a filmmaking point of view, that's the reason we're even getting this film and this story Right, is because she has told him to write down his thoughts and that it would help him. And, um, and I guess because, you know, he's a kid that's, uh, his parents are separated, they're getting divorced. He's, got this girlfriend that he is just sort of sleepwalking through uh yeah. this relationship he's he doesn't even like her he even says that right. to the other girl he's like why am i why was i even dating her why to was begin i dating with? her in the first place yeah uh they do sleep together he uh he i guess deflowers i hate that term but <laughs> right. uh she more chooses him to lose her virginity to yeah yeah uh, in that one scene she that was it's, pretty it's, interesting it's such a i mean it definitely is that way to, to a lot of kids at that age. Like they just want to get it over with. They just want to lose it. They want to check that box and move yeah. on and sort of like feel, you know, it's, it's, it's part of like getting your driver's license or, or smoking or like anything that right. teenagers do. That's sort of a quote unquote rite of passage or whatever. Right. Um, it's just, it's there, there's, it's less an emotional thing and it's just yeah. kind of like, that's what you do. You, you get a boyfriend, then you do it or whatever, you know? Right. Um, and so she's very kind of detached about it in a way. The first thing she does when it's over is just go off to the bathroom and like call a friend and be like, yes, we did it. It was so amazing. And he's yeah. just kind of there like, okay, I, I got through right. that. You know, I didn't, yeah. I wasn't really interested, but I guess it's fine. Well, and she's like, we need to start buying condoms because, you know, yeah. this going to be happening a lot. And right. He breaks up with her. <laughs> there's, a, there's a funny moment where um, she, she's at, you know, she's at his locker and he starts to say, yeah, you know, like he doesn't necessarily want to buy more. And he has this thing about like, well, it was, it was your idea in the first place to do right. it. Right. Yeah. And she's like, well, what are you talking about? Like now you're saying you didn't want to or something. And yeah. then he, he quickly turns it around and says, no, no, no. Like buy the condoms. I thought that was your idea. So I figured we would do that together. And yeah, she kind of calms her. down. She's like, oh, oh, okay. I thought you were talking about something else, but she was completely right. Like she knew she, she totally picked up on the subtext there. Yeah. Uh, and the relationship with uh, the Macy character is great. She's, she's really sweet and nice and, um, they have a playful sort of, I mean, as playful as he gets in this movie, sort right. of back and forth. And there's that one moment when they're sitting together where the way it's framed, it, like you, they almost hold hands when they're on the bus. Yeah. The yeah. They're not touching, but it's close. Her hands are almost kind of like, I think you can tell that 
they both want to. They're yeah. both they're both thinking about it, but the tension is there. They're they're just too nervous or it's a sweet shot and it really yeah. like uh I love it when a filmmaker is so skilled that they can conjure up such an evocative moment just from a simple thing like that because yeah. I immediately remembered being a kid and Absolutely. like holding hands for the first time was yeah. so powerful and yeah. just that connected touch, physical touch was such a big deal. And he gets that all in that one beautiful, beautiful shot. It's, um, it's like that big star song 13, you know, it's, it's, it's that yeah. kind of moment of like innocent. Let me walk you home from school uh-huh. hold hands, that whole thing. It's, yeah. it's, yeah, it's a very, very cute scene. And it's very interesting because moments like that are interwoven with, him trying to figure out, am I going to be charged with murder? You know, yeah, I know. It, it, and and the, the the whiplash, the juxtaposition of those two realities existing at the same time. Yeah, it, there's a great moment um, when he goes. Let's see, it's when he is. It's it's one of the times that they're hanging out anyway. Um, him and him and Macy, and she's kind of uh, pressing him on the breakup. I think. Yeah, and he goes into this kind of mini speech where he's like, "Look, I just don't think." this stuff really matters. You know, there's, there's more yeah. important stuff in the world. There's like the war in Iraq and, and people <laughs> yeah. starving in Africa and all this kind of stuff. And she's like, since when do you care about that stuff? You know, he's like, yeah. is that well, when he's I, reading the newspaper? Yeah. 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 And, and he's like, well, look, I just think that, you know, there's like this other world out there beyond uh-huh. like parents and girlfriends and breakups. There's like this other, there's other layers, you know? And, um, and I just think that, uh, and he kind of trails off, you know, basically, but yeah. he's, he's basically saying like, He's he's trying to articulate that he's been he's been introduced to the world of grownups in the world right. of like big time ambiguity and and yeah. and heavy stuff and he can't quite process it yet because he's still just a kid at heart yeah. you know um, but he he starts to articulate it anyway that he's caught this glimpse of this other world that's out there and now his like teenage you know bubble um, just seems completely trivial to him. Yeah, there's another great moment too that. Um you know, in a movie that's 80 minutes long, you could very easily lose a moment like this. But uh, toward the end when his little brother and his little brother is barely in the movie. Yes. But his little brother is he's uh, Gabe's lying there on the couch and, or Gabe. That's the, the real guy's name. Alex. Uh, Alex is laying there on the couch and his little brother comes by and just tells this story that only a little brother and what he's doing, which I didn't pick up on is describing a movie. He's quoting Napoleon Dynamite. Oh, yeah. is it? I couldn't yeah, figure it he, out. Cause he keeps the character that he keeps talking about is okay. Napoleon. Uh, like, all right. I was hoping you could yeah. knew, but I couldn't quite cause he's kind of mumbling and yeah, yeah. he's hard to follow. And it's I love really, that really cute. I remember being that age and like describing stuff like that to my parents yeah. and then just uh-huh. like humoring me basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, Cause like when you're, when you're that young, like your idea of humor is just quoting other stuff basically. Right. Awkwardly it, and not yeah, correctly. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's very interesting visually too, what he does in that scene, because there's like a, a desk or, or, or a table or something that's, that's partially covering up Alex. So there's this big kind of black square in the foreground. Yeah, it's interesting. Overlapping him where you kind of just see like the top of his head and a little bit uh-huh. of the side of his face. And there's like a TV on in the background. There's like also, I think, like a beam from the house. Yeah. That's that's sort of like covering up the brother. Maybe it's between the two of them a little bit. But you it's it's not like it's not framed in a way to make it feel like this is comfortable domestic time. It's sort of like he's he's trying to be there for his little brother to have this kind of like innocent moment. Yeah. But in his head, everything is all wrong. Everything is all heavy and dark and confusing. And he's just kind of he's, he's playing the role of like the older brother who's listening, but in reality, he's kind of 
that that sort of like immersion has been broken, you know? Yeah. And it's it's a framing and a shot that uh, that if you were in film school, a, a teacher would say, like, what are you doing with There's this a shot? million things wrong with it? Yeah. yeah. You got yeah. You got to move that. You got to get this out of the way. And yeah. it just it really works somehow. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Very cool. And I love I mean, just like the. It feels like I'm sure I'm sure probably in the script, they probably didn't even mention Napoleon Dynamite. I'm sure it was probably just like that kid's favorite movie or something that, yeah, totally. you know, they could they could just have him. He was not inter- reading inter- enthusiast. Yeah. And I, yeah. And I love that how long that they leave it going yeah. on. And then he gets out at exactly the right moment where he he kind of winds up and he's like, and then another thing, you know, and then it like cuts to the yeah. scene. And you kind of realize that it just kept going for Keeps going so forever. Long. He told the whole movie. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite moments is toward the end when he uh, he's been writing this journal and he well, it's kind of the very end. And then he 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 burns it eventually. Right. Yeah. Uh, and Elliot Smith comes back in. It's this great yeah. second half bookend. Another one of my favorite songs. And uh, he I think he lets this one play the entire length. I think so, too. Yeah. Of the film. Yeah. Uh, I think both. I mean, both of the songs play for quite a while. The 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 white lady loves you more. Um, I think it's the whole song, isn't it? Unless yeah, pretty much because cut. I think it's yeah. Unless there's like a, a a skillful edit, like you said, I'm pretty sure the whole the whole song plays because it goes from um, whatever was on screen initially, mm-hmm. something narrative related to then it kind of cuts to like just like skate footage. Yeah, but it is like this like three minute kind of pause in the film where you're seeing a lot of the skate footage and stuff. And I'm pretty sure the the same thing happens. Yeah, at the end, like the whole song plays out. Yeah, I mean it's an hour and twenty minutes long, and there's ten minutes of just. Yeah. Uh, music video, skate footage. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yet he still manages to tell a complete whole story, like in a really rich way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah, so jealous. Great. I know. <laughs> I know. Gus Van Zandt. <laughs> I wanted to say like one, one thing, did you, this is, this is just a, an interpretation. I don't know if you picked up on this or, or felt the same way about it, but part of the relationship with, with the girlfriend, it seemed to me like maybe he was a little bit unsure of his own sexuality. Like, Maybe he wasn't necessarily into girls. Maybe he's into guys because I think there's, I think there's like a little bit of a tension with the bad kid at the skate park Mm -hmm. when he's like, Hey kid, you want to go get some beers and ride trains? Even though he can't really articulate it to himself, the way, the way the camera films him, this other guy in this close up, it's this kind of beautiful portrait. um, And the way I think he kind of gives in to his request to go do this stuff. I think he's almost doing it though. He can't, yet admit it to himself yeah he's like his his ulterior motive is to just like spend time with this guy and kind of see what he's about totally um because it could, it could be sexual or it could just be he's a cool older kid but yeah there, it could there be is that. an ambiguity i think because i think i think especially because you know the the his girlfriend that he's dating um she's you know she's a cheerleader she's yeah. she's very like conventionally attractive she seems like the kind of girl that any teenage boy would like yeah. be super into dating and the fact that he's like so kind of indifferent and he just wants to go hang out at the skate park and so on. Um, and then also the fact that even, even later on when it's just him and Macy, like there's still that kind of distance where it kind of, you know, most of the time you would assume like, Oh, these two seem like they're much more on the same frequency. They could be an item, but maybe they won't be because again, he's sort of, he hasn't yet figured it out. And that's, that's a common theme in a lot of Gus Van Sant's movies, obviously. Gus Van Sant uh, also being a gay man. And um, it's something that comes up like an elephant as well. Sure. Um, it's it's a theme that he plays home, with uh, a lot, a lot in his films. Yeah. 
Yeah, and uh, there's even that scene later on after the breakup when he's talking to his friends about it, and one of them's like, "Like, I know it's better to be getting yeah. laid than not be right, getting right, laid." Right, right, right. Yeah, and he's he's just not identifying with that at all. Yeah. Um, and the other moment earlier on when he's with his main sort of best friend, I guess, when he you know he gets a new skateboard because right. he has lost you know, yeah the other one the murder yeah. weapon off the bridge, yeah. and his friend says, you know. Is, is that a fag skateboard right. or something like yeah. that? And then his reaction to that, you could definitely read into a little bit. Yeah. And there's that great, there's a great kind of subjective shot right after where it's his, it's him from the passenger seat looking at his friend mm-hmm. while this like punk track yeah, plays really mo. fast and aggressive <laughs> and it's so slow cool. motion. And it's his friend kind of turning and looking at him and then turning back to kind of look at the road. Um, I, 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 it's hard to even put into words what's so great about that scene. I know, man. Because the elements awesome. are so simple, but but it is just something about the combination of the slowness of the shot and the kind of contemplative feeling yeah. of it, married with the kind of like fast, aggressive punk song, hardcore, yeah. really. Well, um, another juxtaposition of of score and what's going on on screen. Uh, he he does it sort of all over the place. I forgot about that one. Usually, it's like the breakup scene there's that sort of old school romantic uh, right. score yeah and this way he he sort of does the reverse but yeah. uh just so good man i really really love the movie i'm glad you sort of jogged me back into my love for gus van zandt because <laughs> i'm gonna dive back into yeah. all these again yeah uh you know the end of the film it's sort of implied you know he burns the stuff uh his journal right and it's implied that he he gets away with it there's nothing to make you think otherwise this, you know, when I was watching it last night, something I kind of like never really watched the film for before, but I was trying to kind of clock it this time. The guard, I think, you you don't you don't know very much about him. You just see yeah. his face. He never says anything, but you you see his face. You see like his his ID card. You know his headshot when it's on the news and so on. And I don't know. I I got the feeling that this was kind of just like a blue collar working class guy. Totally. He's not drawn a big salary. He's just kind of like one of the millions of kind of faceless anonymous people that, that don't get written about or, or made movies about and so on. Um, he's just a guy doing a job and contrast that with, with Gabe and his family, they seem to be solidly middle-class or even maybe upper middle because there's Mm -hmm. like a beach house and, when the 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 other kid's house that he his best friend's house that he sleeps over at when he wakes up in the morning there's that beautiful sunroom yeah that's with like the high vaulted ceiling and everything uh that's that's some money you know yeah so i think while it never he it never gets to the point where there's like a criminal case or anything so he never gets to pay for like a pricey lawyer to get him off all that kind of stuff yeah um at the same time i think there's a little bit of an undercurrent of like this is kind of a you know a well-off kid and this sort of anonymous blue collar guy who just gets killed and kind of forgotten yeah. about. Um, and yeah, I, I feel like that's a little bit of the tension there that he Gabe is going to, is going to be able to, to go on and, and live this or Alex, the character is going to be able to go on and live this kind of, you know, like yeah. easy, easy life. You know, he's, he's still going to be set up for success because he comes from the family that he comes from. He went to the school that he went to. And he's going to yes, be one of yes. those guys that has a secret. Exactly. He's, you know, he's, he's a quote unquote rebellious teenager and everything, but I'm sure he'll get his act together and go to college and and all the rest of it. So yeah. And, and he's going to have this, this really dark thing that's going to haunt him for the rest of his life. But at least externally, you know, the facade is going to be somebody who's had a very kind of simple and charmed life. 
Yeah, let me ask you this for an alternate uh, ending. Is same exact shot, him burning the book pages, Elliot Smith playing yeah. uh, in the fire outside. And just at the very end of that scene, you see very soft focus, the, the police squad cars with the lights <laughs> pull into the background yeah. and him just kind of stand up, cut yeah. to black. Like, what do you think about that? Interesting. I to mean, me, to me, I think, I think the open, it. it does change it. Yeah. I think to me the the open ending is more interesting because yeah. it gets, it gets into the real, like, I feel like if the case is, is closed in some way, or if we feel like he got caught, it, it, it sort of, it redirects us more into just sort of like a genre whodunit territory, yeah. whereas leaving it unsolved and ambiguous gets us way more into sort of like, I don't know, Dostoevsky territory, yeah. like crime and punishment. The idea of like, if you commit a crime and you get away with it, you still have to reckon with yourself and your conscience yeah. and, and how that can eat away at a person over a lifetime. And isn't that actually maybe in some ways the worst punishment? Well, than yeah. just getting Being a manslaughter case yeah, and then you having at least pay your debt to society exactly. and you, you can you, wash away that sin. You can say to somebody, look, I was a kid. It was, it was a terrible mistake. Yeah. There's not a day in my life that I don't regret it, et cetera, et cetera. But I've done my time and now I am moving on, you know, right. Whereas he, his whole rest of his life, presumably is going to carry this thing with him. Yeah. And no matter what good deeds he does in the future, he's always going to have that nagging in the back of his head. Like, but you did this thing and you can't tell anybody and you can never tell anybody. And it's just going to, yeah, yeah, that's a different deal. That's it's like the kind a life of stuff sentence, you know? that leads to alcoholism and drug abuse right. and these exactly. dark demons. Exactly. Um, yeah. Not to go too far down the Jerry rabbit hole. Cause we got to wrap up here in a sec, but uh, his movie, Jerry uh, with Matt Damon and Casey mm-hmm. Affleck tells the true story of, uh, or a semblance of the Based true, on story a true story. Yeah. Yeah. Of these two guys who went hiking out in the desert uh, they get lost. They suffer dehydration. One kills the other in a in a, what appeared to be a mercy killing. Right, right. And uh, I just sort of dove down that rabbit hole of the real story last night. And that guy uh, paid his. I think he went to had two years of a suspended sentence. Wow. Uh, and probation and all this stuff. So he was found guilty in a way of manslaughter. Sure. Or not in a way, but fully guilty of manslaughter. Yeah. yeah. But. I, I t- just typed in his real name and I was like, Oh, I wonder if he's still around. Uh, he is. And he's got yeah. an open, open Facebook page and you can just go on Facebook and look at this guy's life. And it's super weird that we live in a wow weird time where you can do that. That's this so guy bizarre. that yeah. killed, killed his friend is like on Facebook. And you know, I'm not saying that he's a bad guy or anything. Cause it, no, 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 but it's, th- it's there weird was some that... weirdness with the case, but it did appear to be yeah. manslaughter. He didn't like want to murder his friend. Right. Uh, but it is strange to just be like, oh, and here he is at a park having a picnic. It's, yeah, it's so strange. I, I mean, I still forget sometimes like how quickly and easily it is to find people on Facebook, yeah. especially um, the whole idea of just like, you know, the mystery of people from our past that we wonder what whatever happened to dot, dot, dot. It, it's yeah. like so easy to to solve in most cases. And yeah, even even um, people that you think of as not necessarily famous, but people of note. They're just yeah. on Facebook, you know, you can know. find them and you can send them a request or a message or whatever. It's very, very strange. Uh, one final note here for me, uh, the movie ends uh, and the credit sequence uh, is set to a song by a man named Cast King. Yes. Who uh, it, it sounds like a little bit of a, a bizarro world Johnny Cash in a way. Right. And then, uh, you know, I looked him up and Cast King, as I'm sure you know, but for listeners, he was a. 
he was an old man in Alabama who made his, who was a singer and made his first record when he was like 78 years old, 79 years old. Yeah. And it's just this, I started listening to it immediately. It's just oh, fucking it's phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. And died a couple of years later, but he, <laughs> it's a pretty interesting story. And, it's, and of course, Gus Van Zandt knows about this and finds yes. it out because he's the, the king of cool. And it has, it has a lot to, um, I think it has a lot to say thematically for the film itself because yeah. the the refrain is he died like a man. Yeah. And I think I think what's happening is what it you know the the connection to the film is that like he died like a man sort of means like he faced the music like yeah. whatever was out there that he needed to to acknowledge he did and yeah. he, he paid his life for it but basically like you know the 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 account summed out to zero like he paid yeah. the debt whatever whatever it was whereas in this film that debt is still outstanding and it's going to remain outstanding. Like he's yeah. not going to quote unquote die like a man. He's going to die like a coward in, in some ways for not yeah. facing up to, you know, for, for taking in some ways the easy way out and in some ways the harder yeah. way out. Um, Cause he almost told his dad at one point, even yeah, said he was going to yeah. tell his dad and didn't it, do it. I love that. Um, that whole, that whole sequence where even something as simple as like throwing your skateboard away yeah. and, and, and changing your clothes. Like suddenly there's all these questions of like his mom asking him, Hey, where's your skateboard? And then his friend, like, yeah. did you, dude, what's that? What's with the new board? Yeah. And you know, and then when he calls his dad, um, his mom again, asking him like, Oh, the caller ID said that you called from your friend's right. house at like four in the morning. She knows what was he's up with lying. That? She yeah. can tell she knows, but she's there's, just yeah. in that, uh, unenviable position of being a parent going through a divorce that has to kind of let your kid get away with stuff. <laughs> it's like, it's like, there's not enough there to really, pursue further yeah. she just knows that like he's he's lying something went down yeah but i don't know what and obviously <laughs> most parents are not going to be able to conceive that oh he probably went to a skateboard and like murdered skate park right. and murdered somebody so <laughs> it's probably more like oh there was a party and it got unruly and he was right. really drunk and he called his dad or something like that but yeah exactly you know that's that's the level of um you know severity that she's thinking but i do love that that long pause where she's just like he's like so I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah. And she's just like, so well, he bumbles okay. that excuse that is, yeah, totally it's a terrible like, excuse. He's yeah. a terrible liar in general. Like, like, so, like, you know, I have no idea what happened. And then, and then when he's at the, he's at the mall and he's reading the newspaper and again, he's looking at the obituaries to see if there's something about the guy in there. Yeah. The Metro and section. Yeah. 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 And she's like, Oh, you're reading sports in the Metro section. And yeah. why are you reading sports? And again, his, his story just falls apart immediately, but yeah, there's, there's not enough there to really pursue. So it's just like, Everybody knows that something is weird, but nobody is right. really going to push it any further than that. Yeah, it works that it doesn't go down those roads further, I think. You yes. Know? Oh, big time. Yeah. That all of a sudden Macy wasn't like, wait, something's going on. I got to figure no, this out. No, it's totally realistic yeah. that like it would just be like this weird hiccup, you know, right. momentary and then totally. like forgotten about probably, you know. Yeah. All right, man. Well, that was great. We did what I hoped we would do, which is talk about the movie as long as the movie was. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I awesome. think we talked about every part of it, in fact. Uh, but this is a movie that was just fantastic. Highly recommend it. Um, if you're into, you know, if you're into art and cinema, this is one yes. of those films, but not yeah. inaccessible either. Uh, it's not so out there that it's uh, hard to watch or anything like that. It's really a, a quick, tight, really well-made, constructed film. Yeah, I would say if you're if you're interested in in this period of of Gus Van Sant's filmmaking, I would start with this film, even though it's the last in the progression. Yeah, I would start here and then go back to Jerry and do the rest in order. That's um, what I'm doing because I think you'll you'll probably have a, a an easier time appreciating those films when you kind of see this yeah. slightly more digestible version. Yeah, totally. Awesome, dude. Well, this was great. Uh, I'll see you again in another month or so. 
Great. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Looking forward to it. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Check out Paranoid Park. It is actually streaming. If you have uh, Hulu, it's on Hulu for free um, or, you know, the cost of Hulu. And I had a commercial at the beginning, but then was uninterrupted. I think you can, you can rent it on uh, Amazon Prime also if you want to go that route. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks, Casey. And thanks to the listeners. And uh, we will see you next Friday. Movie Crush is produced, edited, and engineered by Ramsey Yunt here in our home studio at Pont City Market, Atlanta, Georgia, for iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.